All right. Well, thank you for joining our podcast today. We've got Dr. Mark Brady on. Um, he is the Deputy Chief Data Officer uh, at KBR and their Test Resource Management Center. Um, you'll hear from him about his experience and, and years of experience, both in the uh, military space as well as um, in the public sector as well. So, Mark, thank you for, uh, for joining us. My pleasure. All right. So, Mark, like I said, you've got a vast amount of years of experience um, that, you know, I've got in front of me, to be honest with you, and I could, I could read it. But the truth of the matter is I really want to hear from you how you got into uh, being in this role of uh, chief data officer, uh, what, it, what makes you excited about it. Um, and I'd just love to start, I mean, with, with you doing a good intro on, on your history and, and your experience. Well, I, I, I never set out to uh, be an expert in data management and data science. Really, my original interests were just in science and in artificial intelligence, especially. And I was working in industrial research and development and also uh, following that was doing some, uh, some basic scientific research in, in neuroscience and teaching at the university. But then uh, it, it seemed after a while that the, the classical objectives in that environment of teaching and doing research were not really number one. Number one was getting government grants. So I thought maybe I should cut out the middleman and just go directly to work for the government, uh, which I did. So at that time I was teaching neuroscience and also statistics. So I took advantage of the statistics part of it and became a statistician analyst for National Marine Fisheries Service. Um, and um, so then I found that I had kind of a knack for that. Um, it wasn't really my job, but I started re-engineering their data systems. And uh, anybody who wants to get into data professionally, I would, I'd really recommend they start off as an analyst because as an analyst, on the one hand, you can see all of those um, parts of the system that work well or don't work very well. And then you have your customers on the other hand, and um, you, you can see what their requirements are. So it's a perfect place to start. And so uh, based on my work there, I was promoted to information architect for National Marine Fisheries Service. So I went down to Silver Spring and uh, set up their data program um, and implemented it. Also, uh, while I was doing that, uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service is the primary O in NOAA. And um, I was engaged in uh, helping from the ocean side the, uh, the data management program for the larger NOAA organization. One of the things, uh, one of the projects that I was involved in was something called the Big Data Partnership, where NOAA partner, partnered up with all of the, uh, the tech giants. And uh, so was, uh, one, of the, one of my collaborators there was the chief data officer for NOAA. And he and the CIO for NOAA at that time, they were moving over to, for Department of Justice and, uh, and they encouraged me to go with them. So I went, I went over to DOJ and uh, basically repeated what had been done at uh, National Marine Fisheries Service. Then I saw an opening for uh, Air Force Space Command to be their CDO. I thought, well, that'd be pretty, pretty cool and maybe even 
more focused on national security, important mission than DOJ, which is, you know, a little bit political at times, as, as we all know. Um, so went over there, became their first CDO. And then in uh, late 2019, the Space Force was set up and, uh, and the Air Force Space Command was transitioned into U.S. Space Force. And I became their first CDO. Nice. And it's still, I gotta be honest, it still baffles me that uh, we've started the U.S. Space Force, right? I mean, it's uh, it, it's conceptually just a, I don't know, it's an interesting thing to get your head around. And then you start thinking about it as the first CDO of the U.S. Space Force. I mean, what kind of data are you, I mean, are you thinking about? I mean, you've got tons of satellites out there and, and everything else. I mean, I gotta imagine the vast amount of data that's out there and the, the ability to manage that data is just, it's gotta be, I mean, for me, it'd be overwhelming. Right? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. So, uh, there's all sorts of data in the space force, but primarily it, uh, revolves around no, no pun intended orbits. So you've got satellites that are moving up to 17,000 miles an hour. You have thousands of them now, and if you're looking at smaller objects, which might be debris or, or uh, microsatellites, whatever, uh, there's really millions of things in orbit right now. And um, there's a couple of reasons why we need to keep track of all that. One is that there could be a collision. So if you have a collision, that creates new debris, then that debris can cause other collisions conceivably what would happen is all of the satellites in orbit would be destroyed by chain reaction. So it's, it's important to do something called uh, space traffic management. But the other thing is that uh, we want to know not only where our satellites are, but also an adversary satellites on what are they doing? Are they maneuvering or not? And, and that can be a little tricky to determine as well because um, we have what's called the Keplerian orbits, which exist in a perfect world and are perfect ellipses. But in addition to those gravitational effects, you also have, uh, you have solar winds that are pushing those around. The earth is not perfectly spherical. There's mountain ranges and so forth. And therefore the gravitational field is not uniform either. So you could have a satellite that's maneuvering, or it could just be a little bit off of its Keplerian prediction uh and and so we have to be able to make those fine distinctions unbelievable right so i mean i didn't even when i asked a question i didn't know we're going to get into that in any use cases that i never been conceptually even thought of right i mean um i mean that that's impressive so then i mean storing all that data i mean you've got to have a significant amount of compute to store that data and storage and capacity mm -hmm. and you know, so you know, without what what type of systems do you store a lot of that data in? I mean, is it is it all going to the cloud, or is it going on to legacy infrastructure like mainframe or Power AS four hundred or whatever might be out there? Yes, yeah, it's, it's almost all in the cloud. Uh, however, I think the the government and industry are also starting to rethink the cloud. So the commercial cloud is something which was advertised as being very elastic and that was that was the whole point of it oh you need more you need less you don't have to over acquire or provision for storage and, and compute 
well, um, it turned out that that for the government isn't necessarily ideal in the sense that we can't scale on the turn of a dime anyway, because, um, budgets, budgets are not, uh, set on a weekly basis. As you know, you've been following the news right now. There's, you know, there's all kinds of things going on in Congress right now in terms of the budget. So, you know, you want to budget something that could take a couple of years. So, so that kind of flexibility doesn't really help us a whole lot. Uh, the other thing is, is the pricing models often are punitive in terms of egress of the data. And we want to have flexibility. We want to be able to have our data distributed in various places for various reasons. And, uh, if you take it out, you're going to pay every time you take it out, it could be paying for a query, you could be taking, you could be paying to move it and so on. So, uh, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more on-prem going forward. No, I, that's, that's interesting. Right. And, um, if I start thinking about like the evolution of data, I go back maybe seven or eight years, you know, years ago. And I just remember data becoming this huge topic. And I think there's even a couple of articles out there saying that, you know, the next, uh, you know, next uh, major commodity out there is it's not oil, right? It's it's data, right? I think it was like the Economist. I'm paraphrasing that headline, right? And how important it was. And then all of a sudden, there's this rush to like data lakes, and everybody needed a data lake, and you had to get your data into one location, and everybody is racing to get their data to the cloud. And I still think there's a little bit about about that today, um, but I have seen some recent articles and I've gone to some conferences recently where that seems to be changing, right? And and maybe it's best to kind of leave data where it is, um, but give a consistent experience into that data, catalog it, um, provide better governance around it, right? Those types of things. But I mean I want to hear from you on, you know, what what is what are your thoughts and maybe even share some of the evolution of when you were first took on as a, a CEO and what it means now, right? compared to what it meant before and, and everything. Yeah, well, I, I think that the idea of having a centralized data store is actually a good idea. And the reason why is because when you have your data scattered all over the place, you want to apply governance to it, you want to find it, uh, whatever, you're going to really struggle to do that. I think one reason why organizations in some cases have pulled away from centralized data storage is because of uh, cultural change issues, really, more than anything else. So knowing the technical side of data science is only one part of it. At least half of it, maybe more, is cultural change. And um, people are very reluctant to give up control of whatever they have control of now based on the uh, the old perception that uh, job security comes with control of that data. We need to really turn that around and make job security dependent on sharing the data. If you're not sharing the data that you are in charge of, well, maybe you shouldn't have a job. And, and so is that the transparency aspect of this, right? Being able yeah. to provide sure. access okay, to consumers, right? So that's a big Yeah, piece. and there's a number of rationale or pretexts for not sharing and being transparent. One is, is security. Okay. And yes, you, you don't want to release that data to someone who's not authorized 
but very often people who are authorized to see the data and need to see the data are prohibited from seeing it. Um, and so we need to, we need to stop doing that because there's just as great a risk of data underutilization as there is in terms of exfiltration. So if you've got some really important data and you're not acting on it, I mean, you, you could, you could end up uh, experiencing um, some kind of disaster, either at the national security level or, or commercially or what have you. I mean, that, that makes sense. Right. And, um, and so being able to provide transparency, not to just people in your organization, but then to others outside your organization, um, but being able to only share what you're comfortable with them seeing, right. And, and everything as well. Right. Yeah. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be based on familiarity. So what is more common is, Hey, I went to lunch eight times with this person. Now I trust them. I'm going to give them some data. It has to be on a more objective basis, right? Where, uh, okay, the organization decides that this is a person that needs the data to support the mission and therefore they're going to get it. Not just that they're familiar with, uh, the person that happens to be in control of it at the moment. And also, you know, culturally to go along with that, that has an even broader implication than just in the data domain is understanding who your customers are, right? So every organization has these little compartments and, and there's a tendency that we just measure our performance within that, within that compartment. But that isn't the way to measure it is how well are we serving our customers in the organization and outside the organization? Step one there, I would recommend for leaders and management, have everyone identify who their customers are. Yeah, absolutely. And then when we talk about this skill, right, the, the skill that's required, I mean, I got to imagine that you're constantly training folks on, you know, bringing new folks into your organization and they got to get up to speed. But you know, what we often see with so, you know, with such a huge focus, right? When I went to Amazon, I mean, there seemed like there are data, you know, databases, run new databases running on, on AWS, you know, all over the place, right? And then new tools for managing that data, data, metadata, governance, and everything else. How do you, I mean, I guess it's a two-part question. One, how do you pick the tools that you're going to use? And then on top of that, the talent piece of this, because I'm sure you want to attract the latest and greatest talent and want them the latest and greatest talent really care about using the latest and greatest tools and technology, right? And so does that play into, a play into your decision-making? Well, I'll start with the talent part. So uh, here, here's a, a, a bit of advice that's really going to help folks that are trying to acquire talent and data. The number one mistake that I see that organizations make is they prioritize their subject matter. So if they're in finance, it's finance experience. If it's medical, it's healthcare experience and so forth. But guess what? That is the last thing that you should be asking about. The first thing that you should be asking about is analytical aptitude. So I can take someone with great analytical aptitude. They might've been a programmer. They might've been an analyst. They might've been a physicist, a mathematician, an engineer. And I can take that person, I can train them in next generation data management, and they will be superb. They'll be outpacing people who have subject matter expertise 
very quickly. But the opposite isn't true. I can't take someone who only knows subject matter and necessarily, in all cases, make them into a great data scientist. So hopefully that's that's of, of help to, to folks. Um, as far as the applications, you want applications that are adaptable and integratable and where you control them. So a lot of applications, um, even if they're built in-house, they might be black boxes where you don't have the design information, you don't have the schemas for the data structures and so forth, and that's not very useful. So that goes back to the transparency part that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, you want to have applications that are really transparent. Now, some things are off the shelf, and of course they have proprietary insides and there's appropriate places for those. But if you're building your own, or if you're having somebody build something for you, you have to have that intellectual property because the, the intellectual property is really what you're paying for. You're not paying for the executable. I mean, that makes sense, right? And, and when I, you know, I spent 17 years at Accenture and I left there earlier this year. And, you know, I was more in this technology space where I covered across different clients, right? I would support a, a healthcare client, a financial services client or whatever, right? And a public sector client. Right? Um, and, you know, the architecture is the architecture. I mean, you have to understand the uniqueness of the client, their environment, what they're willing to do, what they're not willing to do, right? But being able to apply that architecture, um, and then in this case, right, the analytics around the data, but then partnering up, I'm, I'm guessing you partner up with a business expert, right, that understands that really, really well. And that's where the collaboration comes from. And, and you know, that data scientist takes away and goes, okay, I now understand this business better. How do I now apply it to my modeling and, and everything else? Where do I need to go get extra data? Um, how do I approach to solve this problem for the business requirement? Right? Their mission, I think, is as you as you called it earlier, right? Is, is that fair? Do I have that right? Is that yeah, yeah. Your your subject matter experts are there, and the data science is going to ask questions. Basically, they need to know, okay, in your particular field, what do your data models look like? Uh, let's map out the your data systems, um, and really. Everyone, it's it's a little bit of a matter of ego. We all want to feel like our area is very unique and special, right? But guess what? They're not special. And when it comes to data, it's all the same stuff. So if you look at, you know, my career path as an example, I went into natural resource management. I had no experience in that at all. I had no experience in marine biology. I went into DOJ, no uh, expertise or background in the law. Went into space. I had no background in space. It didn't make any difference whatsoever. I mean, that's a great, that's a great analogy, right? I even think about that. I mean, you've been across industry and, or essentially across industry within, you know, government organizations for a period of time now, right? And now you're working for KBR, right? And, um, I, I don't know. I'd be honest. Can you maybe expand a little bit on KBR and and what you guys do? I, mean, I find sometimes, uh, obviously, these defense organizations or companies that you know have defense contracts. I don't have a lot of information on them, right? I know a little bit about Raytheon because they're in my backyard here in Colorado, but um, KBR, I'd love to know more about KBR and what you guys do and a little bit more about your daily and your team's daily activities, if you will. Yeah, so, yeah, sure. So, so KBR 
it's a large company. They're in the energy sector. They're, they're in the defense technology center. They're technology uh, suppliers generally. So we provide technology expertise in, in a number of sectors. And so in my particular case, which is a little unusual, I'm, I'm deputy chief data officer and I'm a contractor from KBR at the same time. So I have one foot right in the, in the government military uh, sector and in the private sector at the same time. So one, one reason why I decided to make that move is because I could see that the real changes and advances that are going to be made in the DOD are actually going to come from industry. So I'm coming at it from that angle right now. Okay. So that gives you kind of the, the straddle both, right? You know what's going on in the DOD. And you have access then to information in the public sector that might not be as easy to access, if you will, right? Um, if you were just solely in the DOD. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of talent in industry uh, because they can pay more. They don't have uh, constraints in terms of their pay structure. Uh, and so there's a, the talent pool side of it as well. So you said that you're in Colorado currently? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Virginia and just coming from Colorado. So it's a, it's a nice state. Well, I, I feel like I would be doing some, somewhat a disservice if we didn't talk around generative AI, right? Um, when we're talking about data and, or I mean, a podcast at all, right? You got to talk about it. So um, love to hear your thoughts on it. And then... You know, are you seeing a lot of push now or is it changing your approach to how you're approaching data transparency or how you're collecting data, managing data, all those types of things now that you've got generated AI? And I'm guessing, I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, people are knocking on your door all the time now because they've got a generative AI mission and they need access to your data. Yeah, so uh, I, I think a lot of people, including myself, were surprised at the recent leap forward because the field of AI has been sort of creeping along for, for quite a while, looking for that big breakthrough. And then uh, large language models came along. Uh, and and I, I should qualify that by saying, if that's what they really are in their entirety, because uh, much of it is, is proprietary. So we're not sure if there's other ingredients in the cake there. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. And so the, um, the jury is still out, I think, in terms of whether or not at the point of uh, general artificial intelligence, so, which I think relies largely on, analo on analogi <laughs> analogical reasoning. So the great flexibility that the human mind and to an extent other animals have is that they can learn in one area and then they can apply that knowledge in a completely other area. This is related to other things like associative memory and Hebbian learning. It's all about association. When, when a human learns something new, they don't take that in uh, in explicit verbatim form. What they do is they hang that on a framework of something they already know. This is the great power of the human mind. So I started doing some experiments with chat to see if it had the ability to carry out analogical reasoning. And surprisingly, I found that it does. 
So for some people that might be a little bit scary or promising depending on how you look at it. But uh, yeah, so I think we are on the cusp of something. The other thing that's really going to make things take off is when we start combining robotics with this kind of AI, because the, the missing piece in these large language models is they are getting their experience, the raw material for analogical reasoning secondhand through humans. But what if they can get out there in the world using robotic uh, interface and start collecting their own raw data? I think things are really going to take off from there. And that's an interesting point. I never even thought about that, right? Um, I mean, you build a robot that can go out and have its own experiences, right? Maybe it's like, mm -hmm. you know, like walk, like something simple where they walk down the street and go get a coffee, right? That's probably too advanced day one. But let's just say it's it's capable of doing. It's going to constantly learn about, you know, the cars on the road, right? That it didn't know about, right? And you know, how to, you know, it'll be trained probably to stop at a stop sign, but, you know, maybe wait, right, for a car, but then the interaction with people and where to wait in line and how to wait in line, all that stuff that, that, so you, and when you say chat, you were talking about chat GPT, that's what you were playing around with or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. What, chat GPT. Right. How did you do an experiment on that? You just asked it a series of questions to see if it could build on the conversation. Or, well, I, I did a few experiments. So, uh, relating to what you just talked about, where where a robot goes out and and conducts an errand, I I asked Chat how would, for instance, um, start out at home and then go to a drugstore and purchase a uh, purchase some cough medicine, right? And that's not likely to be something which verbatim is just on the internet from which it gets its information, internet and, and books and so forth, but it knew. So I was surprised at all of the details that it had in terms of what it would do to execute that task, something that it would gain from actual experience. Um, so, so that was really impressive. The big, the big challenge of generalized intelligence is adaptability. So, you know, say you are going to go to the drugstore. Well, if that drugstore is closed or you haven't never been to the drugstore in the area before and you don't have GPS available, how are you going to find it? What are you going to do when you get in the store? Do you know how to cash out? Do you know how to drive a car? Um, you know, who built the car? How, who made the roads? You know, there's a lot of uh, intelligence that goes into this whole thing and it knew. So in terms of analogical reasoning, I'll give you one example, uh, question that I gave it. I said, what is the, um, what is the connection between, uh, the, uh, the mean value theorem and calculus and, and, uh, alcoholism, like what, what kind of uh, analogical connection is there between those? And I think most humans would probably fail that, uh, but it came up with a very good answer. <laughs> I would fail that for sure. Um, and pride and I'll bet no, nobody had mentioned this before on the network. So, yeah. um, it came up with it pretty much on its own. That's funny. That's interesting. And humor, humor is another one. Um, you ask it to explain, like, here's a joke. Why is it funny? <laughs> okay. It, like, 
it that's that's analogical reasoning too i mean because humor is uh a reference to something else right that you're familiar with and that's what makes it funny so so yeah it's uh it's pretty impressive i mean that is did chat gpt actually know like what store to go to like what was a close store and you go up here to the, the right. And you... Well, I didn't mention that. Yeah, I wasn't asking it for specific stores. I mean, that would be maybe easy for it if it could tap into a GPS database. Yeah. But um, it knew all of the little subtleties of, well, I would have to know this and I would have to know this. I'd have to know how to drive a car. And then when I got in the store, I would do the, I would go down the aisles and this is how I would check out and everything that would happen at the cash register. And uh, it it figured all that out. So I think if it had a, if it had a robotic, um, uh, instantiation and it's, uh, it's auto, you know, it's, it's ability to drive a car was sufficient. I think it, it could have pulled it off. That's pretty impressive because if I asked my daughter to go get cough syrup, she'd probably just go to DoorDash and order it and not even leave the house. <laughs> well, that's a good point. So as machines are getting more intelligent. Humans are getting stupider because we're not able to do anything without the help of computers from navigation to acquiring products to everything. And, and so I'm a little bit worried about that. No, I, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the other day my daughter was uh, explaining to my wife that, you know, they, she wanted to get a coffee. My wife agreed. She's grabbing the car, car keys mm-hmm. to go and my daughter is on her phone saying, well, We'll be here in like five minutes. You just paid $10 for a delivery, right? For a $5 coffee. Okay. And explaining mm-hmm. everything to her, I think would be easier for the robot and not my daughter. Yeah. I think, I think a lot about, um, fiction like the matrix where everyone is in a pod <laughs> and, uh, I go out and my wife and I go out for walks around the block pretty frequently around the neighborhood and no one is out, right? Everyone is in their pod and they're, they're living in the infosphere. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty scary. I think, you know, as you know, we're thinking about getting computers out in the real world. I think we got to remember to get ourselves out in the real world too. No, 100% agree. 100% agree. And I think COVID, you know, we could go on a COVID tangent probably for a while, right? But, uh, I think COVID kind of just helped that and, and helped to move people into that comfort zone of being in a pod, right? Yeah. Although I love the being able to do something like we are here or telework and things like that. So definitely like to leverage the technology, just not, uh, just not to be totally detached from the physical world. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a flat, a good balance, right? As long as you apply in the right way where mm-hmm. I still get to go to my kids sporting events and help out with carpool and things. Right. And don't have to travel every week. Like I used to you know, six or seven years ago. Right. And I'm not wrapping up a hundred thousand miles a year, right? So, well, this has been great, right? I mean, I, I've I've learned a lot. Um, I mean, is there is there something that is up top of mind to you that you know people you might want to share with others and and people when it comes to you know data and data management and being a CDO and mm-hmm. you know, things? I mean, you've shared a lot already, right? To be honest with you, and, and it's been great. Mm-hmm. Maybe I didn't ask a right question or something that. You know, you, you might want to share something that, you know, is top of mind, like I said, and, and you, you think that's very important for people to consider kind of an open-ended question. Sure. So, um, 
one one thing that I have been thinking about lately is the state of the art in data science. So what most people don't realize, I think, is that we are somewhat on the cusp of it, not really in the thick of it yet. And by that, I mean, if you, if you think back to the days when there was alchemy and we were just starting to do chemistry, that's kind of where we are in data management, data science right now. Most of what's being practiced is still alchemy. And there's a lot of models that are not accurate models. There's a lot of practices which go against best practices. There's a lot of misunderstanding of what different data, uh, database types are and, and so forth. So um, I think we're really going to take off when people uh, get the hang of what I'm calling next generation data management. Interesting. And so that data management will create a, uh, what's the, what's the phrase I'm looking for? More, a more consistent experience, if you will, for an analytic person. Well, the way, the way I would describe it is it's, it's something with more, uh, engineering rigor, right? So the way that we as a culture got into data management is we would realize, oh, this isn't exactly right but it's close enough, right? So let's just go with it. Uh, but I see data as something that should be very precise, uh, should be well-designed, um, and uh, should have very clean design. And everything should have a reason, right? So if I say, well, I'm going to take this data, I'm going to separate it from this other data. Okay, why? Um, or going back to your uh, question before about having your data in lots of places versus one place. If you have your data in multiple places, do you have a reason for it? If you have a reason for it, fine. But a lot of what happens is more just historical that over time, uh, we added this on, we added that on and you get kind of a hodgepodge. Um, and so, uh, I think reason is, is something that we need to have in everything that we do. The other thing that is not appreciated about data as opposed to other areas of technology, say, compare it to something like networks. Okay. So if you were to talk about networks, network technology of 10 years ago, say, well, that would, you would know right off the bat, that's something which is, is out of date, uh, because it's hardware based. Um, but Data science is different. It's more like a combination of technology and mathematics because it deals with information. So it's logic-based and certain aspects of it are never going to be old. They're going to, so it's like Pythagorean's theorem, right? That's not going to be outdated. So understanding what's, uh, what's old and what's new and what, even, what that means is, is important for people in data. And, and so it's not just the data you're talking about, right? I mean, there is going to be static data or data that's just so old, it probably doesn't serve a, a purpose anymore, right? It might be 30, 40 plus years, and it's just, well, I mean, even, even just whatever reason, for whatever reason, it's not, doesn't serve a purpose. But then I think what you're also saying is the governance of that, of some data has certain rules and boundaries around it. And those rules and boundaries for why it's located in this location, and that's not as transparent to others um, might not be relevant today, right? Are they, those rules might be outdated. 
and we should reconsider those rules and open it up more potentially to to others to access that data. Do I, do I have that right? Or well, I mean something a little bit different. I'm, I'm referring to the technology, right? So, for example, when you think about database types, if you were to ask someone, what is what's a more recent development? Is it a relational database or is it a graph database? They would say it's a graph database. In reality, the graph database was was predated the relational database and the relational database was created to solve some issues with the graph database. So, um, you know, and, and, and we tend to think of like, oh, well, this concept is old. Take something like the definition of a data system. That same definition is going to hold a thousand years from now. So we have to realize, okay, what things are going to change? What, what new techniques can we add? And what things are going to remain as the foundation of data science? Okay. So, all right. Thank you. But, that, but I was talking about the specific data. I mean, you know, data, you could have old data that's, you know, you still want to keep or might be irrelevant, whatever. But I was talking more about the, 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 the methodologies, the practices. Yeah. So, yeah, no, thank you for correcting that, right? Because I, I definitely, I don't think I had it right. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. So, let me, let me ask you kind of a follow-up question. So I work for um, VirtualZ, which is a mainframe software company, right? Um, and what we do is we provide real-time access to mainframe data. And we're heavily focused on flat files, like vSAM, QSAM, and just, or even just flat files in general, right? Um, and so one of the things that, you know, I've learned over time, right, is, you know, I... I grew up really focused on like Oracle, relational databases. Everything has to be normalized in, in a relational world. And then you get MongoDB, right? It's a NoSQL database, but to your point, like it's a, it almost looks like a, a file, acts like a file, right? It's rope-based if you want, right? It could be relational if you want as well. But, you know, with interacting and talking to customers, we're talking about getting data, you know, to the cloud and what format or what they want it, they want it to be in. You know, we could do JSON, XML, CD, right? Promise I'm getting to a point here. <laughs> but I mean, it's very common for clients to just keep it maybe in that file format, right? And they're very comfortable, you know, using that file as long as there's utilities for accessing it, which there are in most cases, right? And it, you can read it. They're fine to have it in a file format, right? Which is 50 years old, 40 years old, right? To an extent. Uh, or you do want to modernize usually. So um, some of these data formats, you know, say it's a file and then you, you have a lot of manual uh, activity going on there. A human goes in and, and is manually parsing the file and so forth. And um, having individual files as in documents, I think you're referring to, um, PDFs or whatever, and, and Excel files and all that. Um, you can't really, you don't have the analytical power in that. So for people who are do who are in that situation, I'd recommend getting a, a good database designer and and moving that data into a into a database. And then you you talked about uh, you know comparing Mongo to relational databases. So there's there's uh, an area where there's a lot of confusion. What I was referring to before about old versus new. So um, the idea that relational databases are outdated is is a false idea, uh, in that 
the idea that normalization is, is a headache is, is a false idea. So the purpose of normalization is to prevent inconsistencies because inconsistencies then generate errors. So a relational database is more accurate in terms of its results than a lot of other databases. And it allows more analytical power because you can combine data in many more ways than you can with uh, some of the non-normalized um, approaches. Uh, but if, if someone were to say, well, you know, um, I like the convenience of having the redundancy in there, which is non-normalized for those people that don't know what normalization is. Uh, if it's not normalized, there's redundancy, right? That, they like that. Okay, I want to see all the information on every line in my, every row in my table. Uh, you can have your cake and eat it too, because there's something in uh, database design called a view where you create uh, that, uh, that redundant version that's convenient for you to look at, but it's safe because as long as your original tables are all normalized, you're not going to generate any inconsistency. So you can, you can have your cake and eat it too. No, and, and that and that definitely makes sense, right? And, and I always have heard this analogy, right? When you when you get into like pulling into a giant data lake, right? There might be customer information in three different data sources, and you've got to decide what is the primary data source for customer. Right? And you're not going to bring in all three of the that customer data that information into that data lake. You're going to have a normalized. This is customer ID and this is the customer's detail. I'm not going to have this all over the, the place, right? In my data store, whatever it might be, right? I mean, that totally makes sense, right? That totally makes sense. Yeah, you want to have everything integrated. And that, that I would say is your number one principle in data management is integration because all of your insights from data come from integrating data with other data. And you're seeing, I mean, we touched about, we touched on this a little bit, right? Where it sounded like the big push originally was to get to the cloud and people are starting to rethink about the, you know, public sector and private sector, starting to rethink the, the cloud. So you're starting to see more of a hybrid cloud approach where, you know, I might want to have certain parts of my data in the cloud, um, but then at the same time, I might want to have some of my data um, on-prem or in my private cloud, right, so to speak. Um, where, you know, for maybe for security reasons, for the cost reasons of, you know, egress and ingress cost or mostly egress cost, right? Um, so that, that's a common thing. And are you starting to apply uh, hybrid architectures or if you, or have you already been applying hybrid architectures for, for a while? That, that's what, that's my main focus right now. Okay. Developing that, uh, that arc. You know, what's, what's been interesting, right? When I, I spend a lot of time looking at things like Red Hat OpenShift and containers and, and such and things like that, right? And um, I don't claim to know everything about all the products that are available in containers and everything, but what's so interesting about like OpenShift and, you know, those container platforms is a lot of the cloud native tools can now be deployed into that private cloud environment and can be leveraged. Are you seeing that as well? And does that give you some consistency across your your hybrid cloud? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a thing, but I'm not really tracking the cloud native 
technologies on-prem. Um, the way that we're dividing things up uh, or, or that one could generally approach that, that would make sense is if you, if you do have spikes, all of a sudden you get more data in than what you're provisioned uh, storage for, for instance, then it makes sense to use the cloud for overflow. Uh, but you may never have to do that. So, you know, I wouldn't say plan for overflow by putting everything in the cloud. I would say uh, buy your own equipment. And then you've got hybrid uh, approaches such as using a co-location for the facility. It's got security. It's got, it's got the physical uh, building structure and so forth. Um, and then bring your own equipment into it. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Rather than building your own your own data center.